Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Good, the Bad and the Barbie by Lauren Windle Barbie and I always had an unspoken understanding that our relationship would be mutually destructive. She made me feel inadequate, I was too short, without a cinched-in waist and pneumatic boobs, and I chewed off her toes. One all. I spent the better part of two decades not thinking about my adversary, until once again she reared her not at all ugly head. I always celebrate on July the 21st. It is, after all, my birthday. But this year, the date was eagerly anticipated by millions, and not because they share my love of Colin the Caterpillar cake. This year, it was Barbie Day, and it was all anyone could talk about. 2-1 to Barbie. If you missed the news that there's a Barbie movie now in the cinemas, clamber out from underneath that rock and let me tell you about it. The film starring Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling caused quite a stir with what I can only assume is the biggest marketing budget since Nike released Air Jordans. Both Warner Brothers and Barbie's parent company Mattel have thrown money at it, making sure we all know about their candy-coated flake. The campaign has been so effective that production sparked a global shortage of fluorescent pink paint. The box office is now raking in cash as people flock to see the future film. When I attended a morning viewing this weekend, I was one of the few people who hadn't come dressed head to toe in pink. Not a chance, Barbie. On taking my end-of-row seat to facilitate a quick getaway... I settled in for one hour and 54 minutes of fraternising with the enemy. I'll level with you. Barbie had made some effort to change. The vibrant colours, mainly in a rosy hue, were still in place, along with glossy hair and impossibly smooth legs. But there was a new self-awareness and self-deprecation that hadn't featured in our childhood tea parties. I had expected a vapid tale with fun flourishes. The story certainly delivered on both of those, but with a lot more I hadn't anticipated. From where I was sitting, popcorn in hand, legs stretched out into the aisle, it was a satirical story of feminism, patriarchy, and the joy and anguish of fully embracing life on life's terms. If you saw that coming, you probably have the gift of the prophetic, because it was certainly not on my radar. If you don't think too much about the plot... The film is easy to enjoy. Helen Mirren offers a witty commentary, which is like someone handing you a cup of tea with two sugars when you usually just take milk. It was a welcome surprise that you wouldn't have asked for, but were delighted to discover. It was a visual feast for the eyes, with everything, especially the inhabitants of Barbie land, looking perfectly polished. There were also a number of very funny jokes, albeit with adult undertones. All good so far... But now let's suppose that you, like me, will think about the plot. When the word is defined correctly, I am delighted to identify as a feminist. 
That does not mean that I support every feminism-associated declaration of the last hundred years, but it does mean that I passionately champion women and the correcting of previous and some current oppressions. This would make me a prime candidate for loving the Barbie movie. Finally, my arch-nemesis is on the right side of history, right? I'm not sure that's the case. Sometimes, in an attempt to show willing, we can allow the pendulum to swing a little too far in the wrong direction. Mattel's campaign to rebrand Barbie from a ditzy blonde to an empowered achiever has been well documented. People didn't want the lack of ambition that came with shopping mall Barbie or beach Barbie, and they certainly didn't want to have to live up to her unrealistic beauty standards. Apparently, if a Barbie doll was to scale, she'd be five foot nine with size three feet and only enough space in her waist for half a liver. Rather than continuing along these lines, portraying the company as inspiring for girls and women, they take the mick out of it. They highlight that Barbie has been part of the problem. But in making their point, they outrageously infantilise men. Of course, this is satire and comedy allows space for exaggeration, but it still didn't quite sit right for me. Not one man offered a positive portrayal of masculinity. Although Michael Sarah's Allen is a joy to watch. On the whole, men were either oblivious, obsessed with their own success, or childish and sometimes sit on board meetings wishing they could just tickle each other. The very brief summary, without revealing too much of the plot, is that Barbie is very happy in Barbie land, a perfect paradise, where women do the lion's share of the work and take all the leadership roles. But something starts to change and the real world begins to seep in. After causing a rupture between the real world and Barbie land, the patriarchy is introduced into this female-led utopia and the Barbies must banish it in order to restore the sorority-dominated lifestyle they previously enjoyed. Not a problem. When Ken found out that patriarchy wasn't about horses, he lost interest anyway. In a world where even Caitlin Moran is writing a book posing the question, What about men? I fear this film will age badly. The vast majority of people, including women, don't want to propel women by doing men down. In 10 years, I think many of the critics who have lauded this film as a classic will cringe at their enthusiasm. Finally, let's frame this with the ways the Bible has influenced the film. Oh yes, the biblical message hasn't just underpinned Harry Potter and The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. It's apparent in the Barbie movie too. If we replace Barbie Land with Eden, we can see a stark comparison between the film and the creation story. In this utopia, Barbie is given authority over the land. She is given a helper in Ken. But their paradise is threatened by human fragility and the quest for more knowledge. After it comes crashing down, the inhabitants just want to get back to their previous state. The film demonstrates the desperation to return to Eden in the face of an imperfect and broken world. But it also highlights the beauty that can be found in allowing yourself to experience life on life's terms. 
to cry, feel pain, embrace the ache associated with change. For that, I respect its efforts. Although I think Disney's Inside Out manages to achieve the same without belittling them. What Was I Made For? by Belle Tyndall. I urge you to take the Barbie movie completely seriously. The film itself, the press tour, the reactions and reviews, the watch parties, the soundtrack, the costumes, all of it. This is not a film to be shrugged at. Love it or hate it, Greta Gerwig's reimagining of the Barbie universe is a tool with which we can read this cultural moment. This film, funded by Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling, to name just two of the astonishingly expansive Ailey's cast, is already something of a cultural artefact in that it binds together decades' worth of individual memories and experiences with a toy whose impact is truly unfathomable. These micro-stories have fed into what is now a macro-narrative. In binding together such experiences, the Barbie movie will attempt to speak into what has been, what is, and what may be. You may think I'm being dramatic, but if you're unaware of the term Barbenheimer, then I'm afraid that culture is already speaking a language that you're unfamiliar with. While it's hard to know how this film will age, it's not hard to see how it is a real moment, one that should be given our full attention. As Lauren Windle has provided a masterful analysis of the movie itself, this article will turn its attention to Billie Eilish's hauntingly good musical accompaniment. Anticipation has been building, as certain songs have mysteriously been left off the movie's soundtrack's track list. What are these mystery songs? Who is giving them to us? Why are they being kept hidden? Rumours began to swirl, the most traction being given to the theory that Billie Eilish, the 21-year-old musical prodigy, had something particularly special up her sleeve. And the rumours were right. A week before Barbie's release date... Eilish released What Was I Made For, a song written just for this movie, and perhaps just for this moment. The last time Billy turned her hand to writing a song for a film, she wrote an Oscar-winning anthem for James Bond, so this Barbie offering was always going to be special. This song, written with her older brother Phineas in their childhood home, has already been streamed around 20 million times. We can therefore assume that it is already residing in Gen Z's public consciousness. Simplicity seems to have been the key choice when it came to the production of this ballad. Aside from a soft piano accompaniment and a hint of harp in the middle, Billy's vocals have nothing to hide behind. In fact, her clean and soft voice sounds as though it reaches out of the song. The echo and layered harmonies giving it a truly 3D feel. The result is ethereal. But this song is more than beautiful. It is more than its wondrous sound. The lyrics are quite literally haunting. The title of the song is also the question that ties it together, as repeatedly Billy asks the question, what was I made for? This question and its implications is where this song becomes more than a song. 
as so many of the great ones do, it becomes a three-minute-long existential pondering. What is particularly interesting to explore is who Billy is asking this question on behalf of and who she's asking it to. Of course, this song was written for the purpose of featuring in a film, its primary job being to tell the same story as the film itself, or at least an aspect of it. Over a billion Barbie dolls have been sold since 1959. Over the years, Barbie has had over 250 professions. She has evolved through the decades to best personify the evolving beauty ideals of the age. She is, to quote herself, everything. But in being everything, is she also nothing? Time recently wrote that Barbie has no inner life or purpose. Children are supposed to project their hopes and dreams onto her blank canvas. Considering this, it's obvious how lines such as Taken a drive, I was an ideal. Looked so alive. Turns out I'm not real. Just something you paid for. What was I made for? Hit the brief perfectly. If the song was intended to be a seeking out of Barbie's more fragile side, it's done its job tremendously well. But there's more to it. Billie Eilish has been under culture's magnifying glass since she was 15 years old. Many of her most formative years have been spent in our gaze as she's become an adult in front of our very eyes. Whether it's been the ever-changing colour of her hair, the romanticism of her homegrown talent, the fact that her sense of style so satisfyingly defies all the rules of the moment, or that her voice is so delicate almost feels as though it needs protecting. She's had us utterly captivated. And, of course, such captivation has taken quite the toll it always does. Taking a moment to imagine how the world looks from Billy's point of view, it becomes obvious that a song that was written for a toy is also profoundly autobiographical. She, too, is an ideal. She is something we've paid for. Through writing this song, Billy offered us her profound vulnerability. And what's fascinating is that she did so without even realising it. When speaking about the song, Billy recalls how I was purely inspired by this movie and this character and the way I thought she would feel, and I wrote about that. And then, over the next couple of days, I was listening, and I do this thing where I'm writing for myself and I don't even know it. This is exactly how I feel. I didn't even mean to be singing it. So this song has two profound levels to it, and yet I can't help but feel it has even more to offer. The chances are that neither you nor I are a 21-year-old megastar, and we're certainly not a 64-year-old doll, but I wonder if this song was written about us too. This cultural moment is asking a pertinent question. It's certainly not a new one. In fact, I would guess it's as old as time itself. But every now and again, it is as if the volume gets turned up and this question rings out above all others. What does it mean to be human? Or, to borrow Billy's phrasing, what were we made for? The interesting, albeit obvious, thing about Billy's particular wording is that it implies a kind of faith that is hidden in plain sight. For as far as I know, Billy has no religious faith. 
It hints at a belief that she was made with some kind of purpose and intentionality weaved into her existence. This is one of the most faith-filled things one could think, and naturally, Christians would heartily agree. Of course, it's perfectly possible that this is simply emotive wording that Billy has crafted for the sole purpose of getting people to listen to her song. However, I would argue that this question is asked all day, every day, by people who have an intuition that there is more to their presence in the here and now than mere chance. And I'm willing to bet that the Barbie movie is going to have a lot to say about it. Are we in a cultural moment where we're wanting to refind our humanity in its truest form? So much so that we're willing to shirk falsehoods, pretenses and presumptions? Are we disillusioned by anything less than our most authentic selves? It is interesting to ponder where such questions are prompting us to look for answers. Inward? Outward? Upward even? What was I made for is a soundtrack for a movie, a particularly interesting movie at that. But I would suggest that it's also the soundtrack of an existential yearning, a song of a human working out what it means to be such. And I suppose that makes it a song that tells our story, as well as Barbie and Billy's. Begging Bothers Us Tremendously by John Kurt Recently I was in Birmingham New Street Station when a man approached me saying he was homeless and asking for money for food. We were right next to a Greg so I suggested I buy him some. As there was a queue we got talking and he said I'm not really homeless you know I'm just so bored and I live in a hole. For many people Living or working in towns and cities, being asked for money like this is an everyday experience. It can often cause feelings of distress, guilt or confusion. What is the best way to respond to someone asking you for money? In 30 years of working with people affected by homelessness, it is by far the most common question I've been asked. Earlier this month, Matthew Paris wrote in the Times about his experience of giving £25 to someone begging after being told they needed money for an urgent train ticket. The following week, he saw the same person using the same story and he realised that he'd been suckered. It is an experience that many of us might relate to. I used to be the manager of an emergency hostel for young homeless people in Soho in central London. Most of our residents had complex problems, which were complicated and intensified by drug addiction. Begging was a key source of income. Some residents used the duvets that we gave them as begging props to indicate that they were sleeping rough. We would often overhear them telling passers-by that they needed money to get into a hostel. Often they could raise large sums of money based on their articulated need for food, accommodation or travel. But none of the money was ever used for these purposes. Matthew Paris is right when he writes, Begging and sleeping rough bother us tremendously. They are some of the most obvious and visceral indicators of poverty. And this bother gives the issue considerable political capital. As Paris says, 
any minister or prime minister who could associate their name with making a visible difference would reap a harvest. But as well as high profile, homelessness and begging are both very sensitive issues. Thankfully, gone are the days in the 1980s when the newspapers like The Sun would routinely describe those who sleep rough and beg as dossers. Today, the public discussion is couched far more sympathetically. But this change in tone can create difficulties in talking honestly about the reality of begging. It can be a minefield when those cautioning against giving money can easily be viewed as mean-spirited or judgmental. We need a public discussion on begging, which avoids the unhelpful polarisation between naive compassion and harsh cynicism. Neither of these help anyone. And we should remember that whilst we should avoid judgmentalism, we cannot help people effectively without showing good judgment. We need a compassionate realism about the nature of the problems which surround those who beg and honesty and bravery about how best to respond. We live in a time of severe economic and housing injustice. The years of austerity cuts to public services, the pandemic and now the cost of living crisis have all deepened the challenges for poorer communities. Our country urgently needs to address the chronic shortage of affordable housing. But does this rise in wider poverty mean that we should give money to people who are begging? My answer is no, because I don't believe that it is an effective way to help people. And these are my reasons. Firstly, it is important to remember that the issue of rough sleeping and begging are related, but are not the same. Many of those who beg are not sleeping rough, and the majority of homeless people do not beg. In fact, begging has much more of a direct link with addiction or criminal gangs than it does with rough sleeping. In the last 10 years, there has been a growth in the coordinated use of immigrants, many trafficked, to beg in city centres. Your cash donation will not truly help the person. Secondly, we need to appreciate that immediate material resources are not the key problem for people begging. Whilst there is a deepening crisis of poverty in the UK, there are many day centres, charities and community groups offering emergency food and clothing. The material need and physical destitution are symptoms of the deeper issues of trauma, poor mental health, broken relationships and the addictions which have developed in response. These deeper problems are often compounded rather than helped by gaining money through begging. Thirdly, we need to focus on the true needs of the person begging rather than on our need to respond. Our feelings of awkwardness and guilt may be assuaged by handing over money, but this does not mean that what we have done is right. The temporary feel-good feeling is not to be trusted. If more people gave money to people begging, then it will not result in a more just world. Allowing untruthful and manipulative behaviour to succeed in eliciting cash helps nobody. It can literally be killing with kindness. Fourthly, we need to recognise the lack of truth in the exchange between someone begging and a potential donor. 
Often, a scenario presented is designed to place emotional pressure on the hearer to do what is being asked. For example, that money is needed to pay for a hostel bed, to get a hot meal or travel to see an ill child. But hostels and shelters for homeless people do not charge on the door. They are either free or the rent is covered by housing benefit. In my experience, the vast majority of the scenarios presented in the begging exchange are simply not true. Underneath these points are key principles around how we help others. Despite the retreat of Christian faith in public life, the injunction to love our neighbour is still a foundational one in our society and culture. And authentic love is always made up of both grace and truth. Our instincts to show compassion and care are part of what makes us human. We are moved and motivated by seeking to address suffering and hardship. We have a desire to show grace to those suffering. But this grace must remain connected to truth. We must take responsibility for how our instinct to show grace can be manipulated. The reason that begging is never a positive aspect of someone's recovery journey is because it is a transaction rarely based on truth. We may long for a simplistic world where good intentions are enough and where all donations given in good faith are well used. But this is not the world we live in. This does not mean being cynical. Authentic change is possible and I see it every day at Hope Into Action. We help people who have been homeless by offering them a quality home with both professional support and befriending in partnership with the local church. Last year, we housed over 400 people and it's a privilege to walk with people and help them on their journey of recovery. One of our tenants said to me, Hope in Action didn't just give me a ladder to get out of a situation. They showed me how to build my own staircase. The best services for homeless people show grace in their acceptance and welcome. But from this base, they explore the truth about the challenges people face. And truth is a key ingredient in all effective recovery, counselling and rehabilitation programmes. Change is possible, but truth is always a critical ingredient. It's the truth that sets people free. How should we respond to someone begging? When someone begs from you, look them in the eye when you respond and speak as confidently as you can. If you have time to stop and talk with them, Ask them their first name and share yours. If you have the time and money offered to buy them a cup of tea or some food. Research what drop-in centres, charities or churches are open for vulnerable people in the area where you live or work. Knowing what is available allows you to ask the person if they know about these and whether they've used them. If you are worried about the vulnerability of someone sleeping rough, then contact Streetlink and inform them. This is a coordinated phone line which informs the local homeless outreach teams. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.